Welcome to Cyber Insecurity, brought to you by eLearn Security. I'm Matt Kreischer, Content Specialist at eLearn Security. And as always, I'm joined by Neil Bridges and Jeff Goals. Uh, Neil is a cybersecurity veteran of uh, the U.S. Air Force, as well as Fortune 100 companies and PricewaterhouseCooper. He's currently consulting through his company, Root Access Protection. Jeff is a named account manager for VMware Carbon Black. Uh, he has more than 30 years experience in the technology and cybersecurity sectors, helping clients around the world achieve first-class security protocols. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. So I want to start off with uh, social media influence campaigns. Uh, so Renee DiResta, a researcher at Stanford's Internet Observatory, has seen an increase in social media influence campaigns by nation states to sway the U.S. election. This is, you know, familiar ground for the United States if you were here in 2016 and we're dealing with Russian interference. However, uh, DeResa says that CISOs should not sleep on these campaigns just because they're currently focused on national security. Speaking at Black Hat 2020, she said that influence campaigns are being repurposed into reputation attacks against organizations, going on to say that we need to do, quote, we need to do more red teaming around social and think of it as a system and how attacks can impact operations. So she sees nation states in creating influence campaigns as kind of a three-pronged approach. First, create fake persona, fake personas on social media, then create fake uh, content for those social media personas to share and then with the ultimate goal of hopefully making enough noise to amplify that content until it's reported by legitimate outlets. Uh, Neil, I, I want to start with you. Uh, Renee DiResta seems to believe CISOs aren't taking social media influence campaigns seriously enough. Do you think she's right? Short answer, yeah, I think she's right. I, I, social media influence campaigns have never exactly appeared on you know, a, a maturity rating from from PwC or Deloitte or, or any of the big four. They've never appeared on a on a NIST special you know procedure guideline or you know or anything like that. And so I think when most people hear social media influence campaigns, they immediately go to, "Oh, this is a military tactic. This is only for military contractors or you know government organizations or something like that." And so I, you know, I, th I think for you to for you to talk to a CISO and be like, "Hey, you know, when's the last time you thought about you know how media influence campaigns can affect the you know shareholder?" value um you know they'd probably look at you like you had four eyeballs well how would you even grade it though like how <laughs> yeah we're uh we think we're an a minus but I mean, based on what there's there's no that's what i'm saying there's no framework around that like it doesn't show up in any in, in any type of of you know regulatory not even regulatory but even you know any of the security guidelines that we've got out there right now but i mean so, I, I guess my question is how would you as a security practitioner if your uh, uh, you know board of directors came to you and said, "Hey Neil, um, we feel like we have some vulnerability around this area. Like, what metrics would you even start to look at?" Well, first of all, I'd want to get them every single one of them psych tested to try to figure out, like, you know, what, where did, <laughs> what, why you think? Stop thinking. Where did or, where did you where did you think that you needed to be concerned with social media influence campaigns? Number one. Number two, I mean, you know, the reason that these are so effective, right, is because, I mean, what did we give us? We gave a Twitter stat a couple, you know, a couple of weeks ago. When we talked about the Twitter hack, right? It's like 140 million active users on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. Like, like, 
how would you that's that's Twitter alone, not even counting any of the other seven million other, you know, you know, social media accounts either. So to your point, Jeff, like, you know, we're we're monitoring 140 million social media accounts on Twitter to find out whether they're conducting influence operations on us. Well, I mean, I, I think this is a bigger picture kind of question. Like, I, ideally, if you could solve the world's problems from a social media perspective, I'd get rid uh, of it. You, you would get rid of it. <laughs> like, that, that's like saying, uh, you know, if, if we were looking to solve the network uh, security problem, yeah, we wouldn't be connected to anything. Just shut the internet these, down. It, it's not worth it. Network. That's, that's, that's how we solve that. People come to our podcast for practical approaches. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, so from a social media perspective, what if, uh, you know, the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world said, hey, we need to um, verify identity? You think that that doesn't happen now? I mean, Facebook requires you to have a legitimate phone number before you can even register an account these days. I know this because I've set up sock puppet accounts to do OSINT capture the flags before. And so, you know, there are verifications. The, the problem is, is that the systems that support those verifications are still inherently flawed to allow those sock puppet accounts to get to get stood up. And what I'll also say is, is that one of the reasons that social media is slow to combat these kind of campaigns is that more users create more content creates more money for social media right. so so you know it's not until people bring up individual accounts and individual campaigns that that social media companies will again go through an individual level and delete them plus i think we're i, I think we're we're arguing this and i use the word arguing loosely right we're arguing this from like uh you know how do you measure this how do you have the conversation with the board of the CISO about it? i mean let's do unpopular opinion here. I think she's wrong that this should be on the radar of CISOs and, and, and board members. I don't think that this is a, if you're not DOD, if you're not energy sector, if you're not listed as critical infrastructure, I, this should be the furthest thing from your threat vector that you so should. Security by obscurity. You don't uh, think uh, you don't know. You're, that's what you're saying. You're basically saying we no. don't think we are a target the general population, unless you're uh, some of those nation states or, uh, you know, uh, energy or whatever, um, it's not there were, you're not you're not an a, a attack uh, target. It's not security through obscurity if you're focusing on your threat, on your threat landscape, on your threat vectors. If your threat model as a CPG, as a consumer packaged good company, um, doesn't have nation state in its threat model. Why do you need to waste investments on worrying about influence campaigns on social media? So are you, are you, go ahead. I'm going to jump in here and kind of answer Neil's question from my perspective. And essentially, so what the article does point out is, is that a lot of these influence campaigns are revolve around companies that are taking strong social stances on social media. Um, that increases the threat landscape this way because it essentially – it mixes the nation state goals with company goals. So, you know, a lot of Russian campaigns are built on social, on influencing the way social media users view social issues that are brought up not only by governments during times of election, but also by uh, companies. And we saw this earlier this year with the Black Lives Matter movement. We see it every June for Pride. So, you know, there are, Companies do need to concern themselves, I, I think at least, because many are, you know, kind of wading into unfamiliar waters with social issues that, uh, you know, or like countries like Russia and North Korea are veterans at exploiting. 
I would I would argue that, and, and we'll use Blizzard as an example. Blizzard, a company of Activision, you know, has has predominantly had a social voice um, against you know the the things that have happened in in Hong Kong with the the Hong Kong protesters, and you know, but they have a large you know you know gaming market coming out of China, and and I could see I could see an argument being made that they should be concerned with social influence campaigns coming out of China. But again, that's because, to your point, Matt, their threat model has indicated that they have chosen that type of issue to make a company-wide issue. And threat models aren't just related to IT issues, aren't just related to are you in the cloud or are you not in the cloud. But, you know, your threat model in most organizations, if you're Blizzard, I would imagine that your threat model should take into consideration. Yeah, you you fundamentally, ethically as a company don't agree with, you know, you know what's happening in Hong Kong. And so you support the Hong Kong protesters. However, you have a large business influence inside of China. And so therefore your threat model means that you need to be concerned about China. It gets back to what I was saying before. I think if your threat model dictates it, then I think that it's a vector that to Jeff's point has been completely and totally ignored. There's no way to measure it. There's no way to measure maturity. There's no way to defend against it. But I don't think that every company should, should look out for it. I don't think that that's security through obscurity. Now, and, and, you know, obviously, I, I use the term security by obscurity as a uh, uh, a little bit of a uh, overreaching, you know, descriptor here. But uh, the reality, if you take a look at uh, the companies that touch social media, it's a lot bigger than just your energy companies. Like Monsanto's on that list, and mm-hmm. you know, fracking companies. You know, uh, and these are not the big oil companies either. A, a lot of these fracking companies are subcontracted firms. You know, if they're on the radar screen because of their, uh, you know, uh, uh, economic or agricultural or you know. Uh, position on Greenpeace or whatever, right? Um, you know, you will have environmental activists, you know, attacking them through social media. So I, I think it is a lot more than just a small subset that need to be concerned about it. The question is, how do you deal with it? How, how do you even like measure if you're bad or good? So I did have a board ask me one time, you know, not related to social media, but when doing incident response and doing security operations, right, you know, ask me like, you know, Neil, how can you tell that the threat is really a threat? How can you tell that, you know, we're actually having an effect on the threat, you know, in, in this space? And I think that question is is a question that I would pose to the listeners, to the three of us, to, you know, experts out there on the field is, is how do you even measure, you know, if you are potentially a victim of, social media influence campaigns like you can't you you know with malware you know you've been hit because you can see the traffic you can see you know alerts going off on your your sim or whatever the case is you know you know you've been a victim of a ddos attack because you know your systems go down right how do you know you've been a victim of of influence campaigns and i don't think that i i don't think that there's a good way out there to to do that as of yet so this is kind of where, and, and this is where my marketing brain comes in, but one of the ways to tell is that marketing, most companies have social media marketing personnel that monitor everything going on with reputation, with the company's reg- reputation online. I mean, there are third-party companies that make millions of dollars a year monitoring company reputations and scouring social I, media. I bet you dollars to donut. They don't have a, uh, uh, anything around security in their mindset. 
No, but when when you look at this, this is this is one of these things that's kind of security related by reputation. So it's unfortunately one of those things that's really only going to you're you're only going to know what's happened once it's after happened. after the fact. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh shoot, yeah. <laughs> it did happen. That doesn't mean that there's not a market for somebody smart enough to go in and say and figure out. Okay, how do I? You know, how do I run reports that are going to be able to tell companies before they're hit by these rep- yeah. by these influence campaigns that it's actually happening? But wouldn't you argue as well that that reputation and 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 again, I'm not going to dive into your space too much, Matt, but just you know, since you brought up these, these reputation companies, because I've dealt with you know like like Zero Fox on on the cyber side that that deals a lot with negative sentiment monitoring, you know, on social media campaigns and things like that. You know, wouldn't you argue that that some of that reputation brand reputation monitoring is very subjective because I mean, how do you actually measure negative sentiment, or how do you actually measure brand reputation in a in a scientific fashion? You know, other than just yeah, this this feels right. You know, unfortunately, as much as data plays a big role in marketing, even data is all subjective. It, you know, there the whole there's a famous line that says that half of your advertising budget works. The problem is, is that I can't figure out which half does. <laughs> it, it, it's it, that's Pretty really good. how you have to look at reputation. I, I mean, you are creating a subjective viewpoint of what reputation looks like. But I will say that when 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 threat actors are going out of their way to create ne- the kind of negative influence campaigns that will affect a company that say is taking a stance on social on social you know issues a lot of companies can't afford even you know a 20% hit in reputation that could translate into 10% hit in revenue for um, you know over a year so there, I, I think that the answer is essentially tying how your reputation looks online with what it's doing to sales, what it's doing to, you know, marketing and all of that. But I think to your point though, that's, that's the point that I would try to make though, right? Is that a, your point, you can't measure that till it after it already happens. And then I would argue that, you know, a one month dip in sales isn't necessarily an indicator of compromise. If we were to use cyber terminology that somebody was conducting an influence operations campaign against you. Um, and, and on top of that, if you can't equate the, you know, if, if half your marketing budget works and you don't know which half it is, how are you going to out- allocate which part of your cybersecurity budget you're going to combat a threat that you can't determine whether that threat actually exists or not, let alone whether you're having an effect in combating that threat in the first place. And so therefore, you can't even measure the fiscal impact of that cybersecurity threat um, with, with all of the other unknown values that go into to, to determining that anyway. So, so if you think you've got every other threat vector nailed and you still have extra budget and you don't know what to do with it, you can apply it to this. That's kind of what you're saying here. If, if you're in that category, we might need to talk about your cybersecurity spending anyway, because there's probably, there's probably some more things on that list that you could hit before you got down to this. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I, the tagline, the tagline is fantastic. And I love talking about it because it is a very military topic. And you know me, I, I love this idea of trying to apply some of our military stuff to what we do in the commercial realm. But this is one of those areas where it's like, you know, we are failing at A through W and this is like Z on the list. <laughs> Let's focus so on A through W first. Essentially, what we're just creating is another reason for CISOs not to sleep at night. Because uh, <laughs> they can't do anything about it. Exactly. They can't quantify whether they're doing well or badly. What I'm just hoping is we don't have anybody from the board listening who's going to walk into their CISO and be like, so what do you think no, about... Kidding. <laughs> 
we're going to be in public enemy number one. <laughs> That's more what I'm worried about. I'm worried about my LinkedIn messages blowing up. Thanks a lot for the message you just gave my board member. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I well then let, let me summarize it for all the board members out there. Um, there's really not much your security team can do about this one. <laughs> yeah. Moving on to our next topic, uh, which is Capital One. So Capital One was fined $80 million by an independent branch of the Treasury Department last week. A press release from the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency stated that Capital One left a number of weaknesses in its cloud-based storage open to vulnerabilities, and the company failed to establish appropriate risk management before migrating to the cloud. During the hack, uh, about 140,000 social security numbers and 80,000 bank accounts were stolen from U.S. consumers, uh, U.S. customers. So I guess, Jeff, the simple question is, is $80 million high enough? And do you think that Capital One will end up paying the entire fine? I think that it's going to be in the courts for a while. And the, probably the uh, the number one thing that's going to happen out of this is Every lawyer for every credit card company is going to make sure that any internal audit is run through their legal group so that it cannot be discoverable because <laughs> this was an internal audit that wasn't <laughs> adhered to and shockingly became public information. And that's the reason that this fine got uh, levied in the first place. So I want to I want to reword the is 80 million dollars enough because I actually went I actually did this math. And and, and this is this is where this time is out. Time out. You did math. <laughs> I had to use calculators. So does okay. that count as math? <laughs> 80 million. Back so, so, so last year, Capital One's revenue was $33 billion. $80 million is 0.2% of their revenue. So when we look at that, at 0.2% of their revenue, and keep in mind, GDPR is fine for a similar violation of this, even at its, even at its, you know, if you if you stayed out of the UK courts or whatever the case is, is fifteen percent, which would have been four and a half billion. What is what they should have gotten if they had been prosecuted for this at GDPR levels? Well, so, I'd, and I'd, I would I would agree with you, Neil. Eighty million dollars is like uh, okay. Sign us up for the next one. Yeah, and make sure that every future audit is uh, dis- not discoverable. And and even even in some of the more experienced security teams that I've been a part of where our our budget our annual budget for cybersecurity was was 40 million dollars a year. So so you're paying 40 million dollars a year for a cybersecurity team, you got hit with an 80 million dollar fine. I'm pretty sure you're looking at that and going, well, if I didn't have a cybersecurity team and I only had to deal with an 80 million dollar fine, I could actually rationalize my cost because the likelihood we get back to the cyber insurance question, right, which is that the likelihood that this is going to happen again and I'm going to get caught again is so small. I actually probably won't have to pay that $80 million for maybe two, three, four or five years down the road. I could scratch my whole cybersecurity team and save a lot of money. So Ouch. I know, what, I know it's, it's, it's an incredibly cynical way to look at it. But I mean, when you put it in that perspective, but, but there is no way that it would stay at $80 million if you were that egregious about how you reacted to it. it. How long did it take? I mean, this isn't the first time that they've had stuff in S3 buckets. This is just but, the first time that they got caught. And it took an insider threat at Amazon for this to come to light. Yeah. Well, but also the thing you have to think about, especially with any global corporation, is, is that they were lucky that 
the accounts that were stolen were American and Canadian customers. What happens if they're EU customers? In yeah, if, if this was a GDPR issue, right. it would have been eighty million dollars in the U.S. and what did you say? Four and a half billion in the. In- so yeah, yeah you're, Neil, your your the cynical approach makes sense, especially when you're looking at it in the silo of, of American regulations. But the problem is, is that most companies that are this big don't just work in that silo, and they are you know subjected to GDPR fines as well. So this could have been much much higher uh, fine for Capital One. But that's my point is that it's that it's not much higher and because it's not much higher this company is de-incentivized to do things correctly from a cybersecurity perspective because they didn't get hit hard with a penalty. And so they, like that's just basically saying like whew, gosh, I'm I'm really glad that we didn't get hit in GDPR and you're hoping that they go let's just make sure this doesn't happen to any of our GDPR type stuff. But hey, on the US side man, we're good. Let's let's have that let's let those accounts get hacked all day long. It's like your kid, uh, you know, you finding out your kid totally lied to you, broke the China cabinet and did all these bad things. And he said, oh, that was bad. Hey, you want to get some ice cream? Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Hey, hey, don't ever do that again. Let's go and get some ice cream. It's all good. Right. You know, hey, just don't let just don't let it happen to the car. Right. Just as long as it didn't happen to the car. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, so take it take it out of the current example of a, a company that makes thir- that has $33 billion in revenue a year and maybe put it into a, an example of a medium-sized business that has that has these same vulnerability issues that that you know migrated to the cloud in the same irresponsible way and is fined a hefty amount you know is is that cynicism still there Neil I don't think that you're going to, I think because of the, well, if you're going to hold on, let me pull out the cynicism mat and, and stand all over that one. Hold on for a second here. No, if a, if a smaller company does the exact same thing, then their lawyer is going to go and say, well, you only find, you know, capital one 0.2% of their revenue. And so therefore you can only find my client 0.2% of the revenue. And that's if it makes it into courts because here's $300. Right. Exactly. Not only that, but like, Hey, they're probably going to go to their cyber insurance company and their cyber insurance company is going to, you know, float the cost of, of that anyway, because there's probably not going to be nearly the massive amount of regulatory oversight or investigation that goes into that small to medium company. And so that company is just going to go to the insurance company to float the bill you know, forward anyway. So I, I know my cynicism does not end in, you know, by you changing the company size. I think if anything, it just carries over. <laughs> how, how per- Neil, question for you. How, how pervasively do you think the architecture that uh, Capital One used with the S3 buckets in the cloud, how pervasively do you think that that is being leveraged without giving, uh, you know, insight into security? By by Capital One or by every other company that's by, out there? By every other company that's out there. Oh, I, I would think, argue this is way more pervasive than oh, just I Capital One. I, I think I think if you name if you named ten companies off the top of your head that that were you know in the Fortune one thousand, um, I, I would say that that every single one of those ten companies uses some form of this. I can tell you that I know EDR vendors, not Carbon Black, not because you're on the phone, but I know other EDR vendors that store data in S three buckets. I know you know data analytics companies that store data in S three buckets. I know you know even in our own space, even in our, in our own cybersecurity space. You know there are vendors that are storing data in S three S three buckets. It's, it's not there. the S three bucket storage that's the issue. It's the S three storage bucket without having a security methodology built around it. 
No, I think what you're really saying is it's a misconfiguration, which is Security 101. It's a misconfigured IT device, which is listed in NIST, listed yep. in every regulatory guideline that's out there. And and people have forgotten that just because it extends to the cloud, that they still have to maintain Security 101, which is configure your devices appropriately. Yep. I, and so that's what I think it is. I think I think what we're really asking here is, you know, this is an extension of your IT landscape. And so if you, if you would secure it on-prem... If you'd secure it on premise and you would secure those files, you wouldn't have an open share with every HR record and every payroll data and every share, you know, you know, you know, stock option, you know, you know, spreadsheet and whatnot on an open share inside of a corporate environment. So why would you do it in the cloud? That's the mic dropping in the back end. <laughs> You're on mute, Matt. <laughs> You're on mute. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure it was brilliant, though. A lot, a lot of edits on this one today. It was, yeah, sorry, Adam. It was, uh, it was very brilliant. Uh, <laughs> Can't even be repeated, I bet. Yeah, give me one second. <laughs> All I'll say to kind of end this is that I, I do think that we're going to be coming back to Capital One, especially as it moves through the court system. So I, I definitely... You know, I want to end it here, but I also want to say that I'm sure that we will be, you know, retouching on this subject. I, I hope we do, but I hope it's not in a negative sense. I hope we're not coming back into Jeff's point, like, you know, listening to them, like, appeal this down or, you know, anything else like this. But I, I, I hope we get to see more of this. So yeah. for the for the CISOs in the room, and, and I know you wanted to move on, Matt, sorry. But for the CISOs in the room, Neil, what do you tell them to do if if Capital One came to you after this 2015 internal audit and said, shoot, we didn't get such high, high marks on this one. How do you adjust for just uh, uh, their move to the cloud? Um, cloud visibility. And, and I went to, went to RSA this year and I sat down with a bunch of people when we went to RSA and they had mentioned that they were in a room full of CISOs. Um, not a, it was it was at a room full of CISOs that I was not in. It was like CISOs at Netflix, CISOs at Google, CISOs at, at Amazon, and whatnot. And one of the technologies that they said that they were most disappointed with was CASB, so Cloud Access Security Broker, right? And and that's supposed to be like, you know, you know, one of those major visibility tools that everybody has a whole lot of hopes on. And they said one of the most disappointing tools that they were that they had found was CASB. And, and I think when we look at that and we look at you know, you know, CASB as a control, and I think when we think about cloud controls in general and the way that we we think we're approaching cloud. I, I think we're failing mentally as security professionals on how we're approaching security in the cloud. I, I don't think that we're taking visibility, which you and I have chatted about numerous times, Jeff, visibility being like 101, right, in a, in a security organization. We're not taking visibility in the cloud seriously enough. We're not taking, you know, controls, you know, DevOps controls seriously enough in the cloud. We're not taking, you know, um, you know, security 101 controls like access, like identity and access management, like like configuration management, like asset inventory management, things like that. I don't think I think we've we've you know digressed in our security maturity as an industry by not applying the same level of of mentality and controls to the cloud that we've applied on prem for the last twenty years. And maybe it's because maybe it's because we have struggled so hard to do it on prem that we don't feel like fighting that fight in the cloud anymore. Maybe we're still struggling on prem and don't feel like fighting that fight in the cloud anymore. I don't know what it is, but I, I think we're, 
you know, you, if you're a heavily cloud leveraged company and you're not focusing hard on cloud visibility, I think you're you're in line with Capital One on for on this happening again. Well, uh, it's a good point to end on. Moving to our next topic, uh, Brian Krebs from Krebs on Security was sent a document stolen from Brian's Club, which is itself an inventory of stolen credit card information for sale to criminals. Uh, Krebs sent the document, which contains a list of thousands of stolen credit cards and which of those cards were sold by Brian's Club to NYU researchers for analysis. They found that credit card fraud continues to exist in the United States where it doesn't in most areas of the world because lax regulations meant that credit card companies were slow to adopt microchips in cards and many retailers have still not purchased the required devices to read these microchips. This all means that many consumers are still swiping their cards on devices that are littered with malicious code. The researchers found that the U.S. is sorely lacking in a wide-scale implementation of microchip technology that makes credit card fraud too difficult and expensive for many hackers to steal. So, Jeff, a couple questions here. Why are we still here as a nation? And what's it going to take for that wide-scale adoption of microchip technology for both retailers and small banks, many of which struggle to send the proper cards to customers? This this is exactly the same thing as uh, the Capital One conversation we just had the 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 penalty for not thinking about security is not great enough for us to change that i mean that i i think that boils down to uh the the fact that you know neil you and i've talked about this ad nauseum i mean the the, you you take a look at any of the security issues uh you know target and home depot and whatnot how many times have we gotten new credit cards just sent to us because they said, "Oh yeah, um, Target said that it was your your car, credit card was uh, was uh, you know hacked, and you know here's a new one." So you have to go through and change everything out. The, it's it's a little bit of a hassle, but we didn't have to pay any money, right? So we didn't force the credit card company to change. Uh, and 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 just I want to I want to kind of you know elaborate on just how painful and i use that word jokingly to to my friends in in the european union right how painful it is to use a card in europe i mean i've i've you, you know me jeff i've traveled overseas extensively since i got out of, out of the military i've done tons of overseas travel and you legitimately can't buy anything anywhere if you don't know the pin to your card and so you know, I'm not going to lie. I was one of those guys, you know, I did an, an, an MX here in the States when I would travel domestically, you know, you swipe that thing everywhere else. And if you didn't know your pin, you didn't, you didn't matter. Whatever. Didn't matter. Right. I, the, the first time I went overseas and tried to book a hotel um, in Romania and I didn't know my pin, they legitimately wouldn't let me check into the hotel until I knew my pin. I had to call, you know, American Express in the middle of the morning, their time to, to figure out how to get my pin so I could check into a hotel. I mean, and, and you can't you can't buy lunch. You can't buy a taxi. You can't buy a hotel room. You can't do anything that you want to without knowing your pin. And so to say that we're behind on that type of cultural mentality is to put it incredibly lightly, because if you don't want to do your pin, yeah, it doesn't matter. Swipe. So here's a question. Apple Pay, Google Pay, are those leapfrog technologies that basically make credit cards yeah, really kind of obsolete 
especially from a security perspective. I, I very much believe in in, Google, in in NFC NFC payment methods, right? Well, just, you know, Google Pay, Apple Pay, whatever you want to call it, right? Those NFC payment methods, I very much believe in them. They, they've they've stood the they've stood the hacker test, right? And and I've been to numerous Black Hat and Defcon talks where they've tried to. You know they've they've looked at different ways to try to get into those and and it's not been as successful as they had hoped it would be and so you know I think it's I think it's a move in the right direction I think what you do though with that is you now make everybody technology limited right you're now actually saying that you have to have a phone that supports NFC technology to be able to have that level of security which this puts the onus on the user and, yeah. and to turn this into a you know, a, a class warfare type conversation or anything. But I mean, if you're not of a, of a, of a particular financial status to where you can afford an iPhone or a, a Google phone that supports it. And, and until those technologies become, you know, pretty universal, there's still people out there with, with flip phones. There's still people out there who don't have cell phones. And so you're now limited based on your technology. That's not the problem. The problem is, is that we've not enforced the banks. We've not regulatorily said, Every transaction will have to be chip based, you know, you know, with a, with a pin number. We've not enforced that, you know, across the board. We've allowed small businesses to say, well, I can't afford those new systems or, you know, we don't need those new systems and, and we can just get by on swiping credit cards. We've allowed that to continue to exist. So we need to fix the cultural problem. I think we've talked about this before, right, where we don't, we as a culture don't take cybersecurity seriously. And so therefore we let this pass. Well, it, it, if you take a look at it, there are three entities that have ownership of this. You've got the end consumer who has the credit card or NFC device. You've got the store themselves uh, who should be charged with protection on that uh, point of sale device, um, right? And then you've got the credit card companies. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a lot of finger pointing, right? But who should own securing that transaction? Well, so the the stores I think are in a weird position, right? Because if you if you look at most of those stores, they actually don't own the security on those point of sale devices. As a matter of fact, PCI DSS says that the the manufacturer of those point of sale systems they own the security and the integrity of those, and and you know part of that PCI guideline is to make sure that those devices are untampered, that they're only maintained by by the the people who actually put them into the stores and things like that. And so if you actually like try to go into a store and be like, aha. I can hack that point of sale system. Most of the stores would laugh at you and say, I don't care about that because vendor X, X, X over there. Hack away, whatever. Know, yeah, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't actually affect me as a store because that's that vendor over right. there's problem, right? You know, sort of thing. And so I think that, that that culture has absolved the business of caring about the point of sale systems. And I think, you know, I think the user could care less, mm -hmm. right, about how they pay just as long as that payment method, you know, you know, is is you know, user friendly to a degree. And so, you know, you know, if NFC were more widely adopted technology and if you could put an NFC in a Nokia flip phone, you know, I, I think most people would be fine paying with NFC. Right. And so really, I do think it's incumbent on the financial institutions to say we will not process any transactions that have not been validated by, you know, this level of encryption or this level of, of authentication. Um, you know, I think they are the ones who ultimately own responsibility for it. And if you have to point to a regulatory body, I think the PS, the PCI, you know, guidelines should come through and say, if you store, process or handle, you know, credit card information, then you should adhere to to this level of processing standards. But so you know. for first step right uh, here, it sounds like it needs to be the, the PCI board that needs to revise the regulatory requirements. Right. But, you know, who sits on the PCI board, right? Discover, MasterCard, JP Morgan Chase, and Amex. 
I'm sure it'll get. I'm sure it'll pass. Yeah. And you know, one thing I say for the argument that small businesses can't afford it. I mean, it, technology has come a long way even since we've adopted these microchips in the United States, and even restaurants who have, you know, who are notorious for having the lowest form of technology possible for their credit card machines. And I, I spent 12 years in, in the restaurant business. Even a lot of even small comp- small restaurants had adopted before COVID-19 had, had adopted inexpensive technology to inexpensive, inexpensive point of sale technology that allows for micro trip um, adaptation. So, you know, I, I think that some of those excuses for small businesses are kind of out the window. And, and I think that some of this is going to be a, you know, how do we get some of this stuff to PCI and how do we just change the culture and, and, allow make the consumer expect more from the business if we were to change it at the top if we were to fundamentally say i don't care consumer this is for your safety i mean and the banks that we've joked about this too jeff we've joked the banks have been doing it for years to your point just just issuing us credit cards the banks should just turn around and say for your safety we will no longer ever accept a process that isn't transacted this way yeah learn your pin yeah i think i think i mean you know, good on Brian for writing a, a Captain Obvious article, but the the problem isn't <laughs> <laughs> the problem isn't with us who, who thanks, read Brian. that article. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Brian, for that. You know, um, you know, let's get a let's get a, a either a grassroots effort against a PCI in the banking industry, or let's talk to some of the banking CEOs and be like, uh, why are you still? We, we call it Captain Obvious, but the bottom line is it's not changing. So no. it's clearly not obvious to enough people. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what's what it's going to take is making sure that the average consumer knows the security risks of not knowing your pin and of still swiping but, but, your card. But here, here's the bottom line: the oh, consumer ends up paying for this anyway. He found a soapbox. Jeff's about to stand on a soapbox. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, like we here is my soapbox. Yes, the other <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I just get frustrated that we we end up having a. Oh, the bank's going to take care of it. I don't have to worry about it is the consumer's point of view. So I don't care about security. But the bottom line is we are paying for it because the banks are still making money. Where are they making money? It's based on the consumers. They're just bearing the cost someplace else. And we are collectively paying for it as an entire group, even though only 20% have been hacked that year. But a, but a culture of complacency that we have around cybersecurity isn't going to change because the, the mechanisms that support that culture of complacency continue to feed that that monster with its, oh, don't worry about your credit card. I'll send you a new replacement. Don't worry about those fraud charges. We'll, we'll write those off, you know, to, to the insurance company or to the FDIC or, or, or whoever else, you know, fiduciary organization runs that. Right. I mean, you know they've they've taken the worry away from the consumer right you you have to you have to admit that the consumer only cares when it impacts the consumer like like matt said during the garment hack right but it does impact them they just they don't, don't know it. it that's the point though jeff you, you can't see it and so if you can't see it you don't know that it impacts you it's does if a bear all right here here, here to all the consumers out there you thinking that you are totally absolved when you have credit card fraud hit your account <laughs> you are paying for it 
all those other charges that you get charged with, all those annual fees and things like that, you are paying for it. You are you're paying for it in the higher prices. You're paying. But I mean, here's the thing: like the the genie's out of that box, right? We, you know, once yeah. you start paying for those high prices, that that's it. You're 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 never going to unpay those high prices. Yeah, I'll say that I, I having your information stolen, having it affect you, even if it's not monetarily, does make a difference i had my wallet stolen from the gym last year and the week of having to go through terrible phone calls with every one of my credit card companies in my bank was enough for me to really look at the way that i you pay for things and really look at the security that i have on my cards and really look at the you know (laughs) knowing where my wallet is at all time as well (laughs) but you know having even even if you're not paying monetarily when something like this happens to you that it, it does affect you in a way it, but it it doesn't affect you. Does it? Let me ask you. Let me ask you this way: as a consumer, would you make a credit card choice based on how it affected you? That's a good question, I, and I, I don't know the answer. I, I will say that I have not seen a credit card company that doesn't talk about fraud protection. So I, it, it does seem like it has, right. is now inherent in their marketing, even though they're, they're doing the bare minimum. It's, it's table stakes for every card company. Yeah. What what I would be interested to see is if there are companies that step up and say, you know, we're going to make things more difficult for you for your own protection and somehow figure out a way to stay in business. They won't (laughs) somehow figure out a way to make that communication strategy work for people. And it might be that small companies have to start first and then larger companies adapt. But I I do think that there is the potential for that, to happen, whether it does or not, is is another question because it's it, it takes a sort of creativity and risk that is hard to take. So, so, so on this on this notion, let's pull in this thread a little bit more. If you went to go, if if you went to go eat at um at, at Char Grill over there in Raleigh, right? I'm assuming you've been to Char Grill. If you uh, have, only you two million times. Yes. Like that's the greatest place in the world. Props to all my folks at Char Grill out there, right? If you were to go eat at Char Grill, right? You've eaten there too many times. You know how awesome it is. It's so delicious. Your card gets popped, and you definitively know it's because you went to Char Grill. Do you stop going to Char Grill? That's a good question I, that I, I don't know the answer to. I, how you know, good's the food? Unfortunately, <laughs> for Char-Grill, there are many more places for me to get a burger. So I probably would until you know I knew that Char-Grill was doing something different. But you would know, you if though? I, if my credit card company. No, I probably use another card because I. Hey, try this, this card. <laughs> this one. This one hasn't been popped yet. <laughs> but that, but that's my point, though, right? Is it is it Chargirl's fault that that your card got popped? Is it the 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 card swipe machine? Is it their fault that the, you got popped? Is it the bank's fault that you got popped? Like this gets back to the pointing the fingers business. Is that there's so many links in that? It's chain. the government's fault. It's always right. the government's fault. Yeah, yeah. Says, says the conspiracy theorist in the corner. <laughs> you know, I will, Jeff. I will say something about that though. It is where I do find fault with possibly the government is, is that because there's no central communication and central leadership to making this happen. That involves a carrot, a stick, and you know, a reward essentially for you know for pursuing these more secure steps that we're basically dealing with haphazard, you know, haphazardly done rules and regulations that, that lead to this kind of climate. There's no central body. There's no bureaucratic approach to this that makes, that looks at the risk, the motivation and the implementation and says, here's, here's how to do it. Okay. Well, but I, see, I, go, go, ahead. go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead, Jeff. No, no, no. I was just going to say, you're, you're, you're military though. It's, so, blood, it's like, blood in the water. You and I are both going oh, after I know. The- <laughs> 
it's, but I mean, we've got like Air Force and the the Marines and uh, you know Army and Navy. We're we're protecting all these spaces, uh, and now uh, with uh, Space Force, we're protecting space. I guess. Uh, why do we not have Cyber Force? Why do we not have an entity that basically says, you know, from the United States perspective, we are going to protect. The cyberspace. So, so let me tell you a story. When I was dealing with some energy sector clients that I had a number of years ago, right? Because this is this is very very relevant for the energy sector space, right? If you know the energy sector, like a power plant, is a private business. They they are for profit. They make money, right? And so everything that they do has to be for the greater good of the shareholder. That's a bad subject. I was just literally out of power for two days here, <laughs> which is why I bring this up. <laughs> Thank you. It's <a> sore subject. <laughs> um. So they're a for-profit entity. They 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 have to monitor that PL pretty extensively. And so if you have a government entity who comes down and says that every power plant must be a maturity level of five, which for those who don't know the CMMC model, right, is, is like the highest level of maturity. It's basically impossible to ever achieve. But let's say the government comes down and says because of the power grid, because it's critical infrastructure, every power plant has to be a maturity level of five. That for-profit entity now has every right to turn around the government and say, cool, since you're mandating that to me, you have to give me government money to make that happen. And so is that really... Is or you that, have to approve a rate hike. Or we have to approve a rate hike. You know, if you're going to give me government money, where's that going to come from? And I'm not even going to get into the politics of like budgetary and, you know, you know, all the things that associate with that. But I think it I think when you walk down that path saying, why don't we have yeah. a government entity that says cybersecurity everywhere has to look like this? Everybody's going to turn around with their hand and say, give me some money to make that happen. Yeah, but the thing is, is that. The EU successfully adopts so many cybersecurity regulations that the U.S. doesn't. And the, the EU has small businesses. The, the EU has large corporations. The EU doesn't have as many monopolies uh, as the United what States. If, what if they just gave a grading? Like, if you are this level, you get a grade and it's published. So you can choose, what is that, Chargrill you go to down there? <laughs> uh, all, I, all I've learned today is I'm hungrier during these calls than I think I should be. Um but I mean, if if Char Girls has a like a rating of a D minus, and Applebee's has a, you know something of a B, and you know uh, Char Grill two dot has an A plus, you're going to go to Char Grill two right? It's it's just like health code ratings. Well, but health code. Uh, I knew you were going to go there, but health code rating. <laughs> they cook oh, their own here's food. soapbox. That's right. <laughs> health, health. You know, health code is based on the sanitization of the kitchen. It's based on the sanitization sanitization of the food. It's based on everything within that restaurant owner's control. Cybersecurity is not the security of that card swipe machine is not within control of Chargrill. But what I'm saying but is, they is could that- buy a better service. Right, but how they won't know about it until it gets hacked. But if they, if that service provider was graded based on a standard government uh, grading system, that if you have this and don't have this, then you're a C. If you have this, 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 you're a B. I'm just saying there, there's a total lack of uh, unified. Uh, approach to security or unified understanding of what is a good reference architecture for security that a consumer understands A, B, C, D, F, right? Everyone understands that grading system. If there was 
you know, cyberspace, you know, force that existed as a sixth group of the U.S. military <laughs> that came out and said, this is the grading system. I know I'm going to hear it about this one for a while. Oh, I'm bringing but, this up dinner. <laughs> but that, I think, is what consumers need in order to make a sound decision. Otherwise, they are like, honestly, if if you talk to your mom or your your mom's a bad example. Your say. wife's a like your sister. I don't I don't know. Name someone in your life that you would have this conversation you. with. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, that <laughs> that you are trying to say no. You can't go to that place because they don't adhere to these security standards. What they've got a really good burger though, so I'm going there. Thanks a lot. I, I that that I, I guess the only other combat that I would have to that right is and, and I don't know what type of fiscal liability, you know, the healthcare, the health code system, because since living in Illinois, I don't think I've ever been to a restaurant that has like those like when I was in North Carolina, yeah, you'd walk into a restaurant and it was plastered up there in a big huge frame with arrows pointing at it, you know, about, you know, the health code system. Being here in Illinois, I don't think I've ever I've ever seen that in a restaurant. And so now, I don't know. We haven't the, had anyone die here in 347 days, so we're good. <laughs> so I don't know what the I don't know what the fiscal liability is, but I actually, you know, I, I think that's one of the less dumb ideas you've had. <laughs> cool. For anybody listening, that is actually I mean, ringing endorsement. A kind of that. a compliment. I'll take it. <laughs> I didn't say you were right, which is as close as I can get. You've said that to me, though. We have proof. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, on that note, we uh, we were going to have Ford's office say we're, we're kind of running out of time. No, no, we should time. talk about the last one. No, no, with the last one. Okay. Good. Let's talk about the last one. All right. So I'm not going to let the, you get away with not talking about that. <laughs> we have another uh, soapboxes. Our last topic today, and this is actually one of my soapboxes, so I'm, I'm, I am interested in talking about this. So new research led by Dr. John Blythe, who's the head of behavioral science at CybeSafe, found that 25% of organizations punished their employees for a cybersecurity error, such as clicking on a phishing link. Uh, many of those companies named and shamed employees or decreased access to victims, and even some of them informed managers of their workers' mistakes. Uh, a few companies even locked their employees out of their computers completely until proper training was completed. Uh, now, to me, at least, one of the best ways to combat phishing is to create a culture of open communication between IT and business sectors. So when an employee realizes that they've clicked on a malicious link or is concerned that they did, they can immediately inform IT. So I guess I'll start with Neil. Why are companies still punishing employees with what appears to me, at least, as draconian measures? Still is still is, a, is an interesting use of the word. I think every time I hear a story like this, I'm like, I mean, what – what medieval hole did you crawl out of to where you think that this is the right way to treat employees? Like, like, like this is, this is in the same vein of just like, you know, what type of terrible culture do you have at a company where you think naming and shaming and ridiculing, like where that drives success? Like, and I'll pick on, on Jeff and, and, and his chosen career path. Cause I think this is one of those, you know, one of those areas that does that. Right. But this is almost like that sales mentality where it's like, you're not good enough unless you do it this way. Or you, you know, you, 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 you suck unless you, I don't you know, work for those kinds of people. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's, it, that's a terrible, no, I, 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 I'm being very serious. You know, like uh, good salespeople everywhere will not work in a under the thumb kind of an approach. And I think this is the same kind of scenario. If if you don't like it, you can always leave. Which I know is a, a, a like a 
bad thing to say to some extent. Uh, that is the only way these companies are going to change the way they approach this. There are I, better security tools out there. Stop, you know, stop making your employee I, 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 feel bad about not knowing something. I have I have heard of stories of employees getting fired over phishing emails that have led to, to business email compromises. And it's like that employee already feels bad enough that that he or she, you know, you know, let some tens of thousands of dollars leave the company anyway. You don't need to like add fuel to the fire by by firing them. I mean, it's your it's your responsibility to train employees. It's your responsibility to have security controls. It's your responsibility to make sure processes and procedures are in place to stop that from happening. You know, that, uh, yeah, it's, I hate this. No, with, with with that said, here I, I I will disagree with you on one thing though. Here, I think. There's a large number of people that don't care about the training. They take it for granted. They take it too lightly. And as a result, they don't change their behavior. Right? Have you, have you taken training before? Do you know how bad it sucks? Is oh, that- I know. It is terrible. And actually, if all they said was, listen, you get an email from someone you don't know 100%, just be suspicious of everything and hover your mouse. That's all you have to do. If the URL doesn't look right, don't click on it. So one of the things I'll tell you is most training at most companies is not great. I, I will definitely agree with you on that. Now, my first job in communications when I left the restaurant business was for a multinational Fortune 500 company. And I think that their internal – so they essentially their internal communications plan around cybersecurity issues was essentially to blitzkrieg a, a, every one of your employees at all times. So even if you weren't paying attention to that training, you were paying attention to the monthly email that you get about phishing. You were paying attention to the signs that are on the walls as you walk through the office, you know, during cybersecurity awareness month, quote unquote. So yes, there are, you know, a lot of people who don't care about the training, a lot of people who you know, don't understand a convoluted training either. That doesn't mean that there aren't successful internal communications plans for this kind of training. And the other thing that I'll say is firing that person for clicking on a phishing link that causes business email compromise. You want to know a great way to have business email compromise happen again. Go that short-sighted approach of firing somebody and creating that culture where People don't want to communicate. They're scared to send suspicious emails to IT because then you're building mistrust between two very important sides of the business, which is IT and everybody else. Or how about a carrot instead of a hammer? Exactly. If you if you send a legitimate phishing email to us, you know, here's an Amazon gift card, right? Yeah, I guarantee people are going to be like, okay, I'm going to probably send you more potentially suspicious emails that, you know, hit my radar screen because I want the carrot. You're going to benefit as a, as an organization, as a result. I just think that there are better ways to to do it. It doesn't mean the uh, employee shouldn't be trained. It doesn't mean that their manager shouldn't know that that happened so that they can guide them. Ridiculing that you're right. That there's no place for that. That's idiotic. And and I have I the first the first place that I worked when I came out of the, the Air Force was a financial services organization, and they did the Amazon gift card thing, and 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 the, you know more carrot than stick, and uh, and yeah, I mean it had a very measurable. Um, I would know, think so. Yeah, absolutely. It worked. It worked amazingly. And so like I'm, I'm, I am shocked that four in ten do. I'm I am, shocked that it's that high. 
Me too. I'm I'm shocked that that we haven't learned this lesson on more carrots and less sticks when it comes around to security awareness. Like I I mean even I've worked even recently with you know companies that were bigger than this financial services company that I worked with who still struggle internally with like eh is this the right thing for us to do from a security awareness perspective? It's like how how is this not a thing? Like where are the numbers to prove that this is a terrible idea? Well, I think the moral of the story is don't fire your employees for, please for don't please don't your incident response teams hate it, your employees hate it. Like just don't do it. Yeah, create that open culture. Create that that like Jeff says, create that carrot instead of the stick and you're going to have a lot more cybersecurity investigators than than you would have if you're, you know, if you're naming and shaming employees. So that's that's all the time we have today. Gentlemen, thank you so much. If uh, you want to listen to more episodes, subscribe to the INE IT Experts Podcast Network or check out the eLearn Security YouTube page. And we will see you next week. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Matt.